in San Diego. So we are truly privileged. And I'm very happy that they are here uh, performing for us tonight. And I'm very happy to see many of you from uh, Intro to Fiction. And as I understand, there are some students from Intro to Poetry as well, some other classes at, uh, here at UCSD. All of you, welcome. Thank you for being here. Before we get with the program, let me just tell you, remind you, we have another truly cosmopolitan international bilingual uh, reading uh, on the 27th of uh, January, right? John B. Washington, a writer, a fiction writer, a translator, who also has lived in Mexico for a long, long time, uh, will be here reading for us on, on Wednesday, the 27th of uh, January. And then a uh, Filipino-American uh, novelist, writer, will be here with us on March the 2nd. So we have um, what I see as a, as a very exciting, very uh, truly innovative group of uh, writers with us, and, and thank you for being here. So I want to thank you, if, uh, thank Taylor and Gina, because they did a lot of work uh, for organizing things today. So thank you, continue doing so. They're wonderful, <laughs> right? And uh, Miguel Cinta Solis will be introducing Lorena Gomez Mostajo. She will read and talk first. And then Majo Delgadillo will introduce John Gibler, although they've been telling me that perhaps John is going to be introducing Majo and Majo is going to do the reading. I don't know what they're going to be doing. I hope this is interesting and exciting in any case. So it's all yours. Thank you again. Hello everyone, thank you for coming. Uh, the professor did a very good job of projecting, but I don't trust that you'll hear me or understand me if I don't use the mic. So. Uh, the voice of the editor is ever present in the mind of the writer, a voice often dreaded and feared. It is not uncommon for the writer to begin editing their own work well before the words have materialized on the page. So tenebrous is the writer's internal editor that when it comes to interacting with a real flesh and blood editor, the writer may automatically respond with resistance, defensiveness, and mistrust. The writer asks, is the editor equipped to understand my work, my vision? Originally from Mexico City and recipient of an MFA from the School of Art Institute of Chicago, Lorena Gomez Mostajo's work has spanned not only creative mediums but also languages and continents. With a background in photography, sculpture, journalism, criticism, and creative writing, Mostajo's career as an editor is uniquely informed by her position at a rich multidisciplinary confluence. Last October, Mexican literary magazine Letras Libres featured a brief essay and film by Mostajo discussing the centralist fragmentation of people, place, politics that is downtown San Diego's urban landscape. First reading the essay and then viewing the short film, I was struck by how seamlessly Mostajo moves from working in two very distinct mediums. Her mastery of the compositional eye is present as much in her writing as in her visual work. Yesterday, I conversed with Mostajo about impasses I have reached in my own writing, and she responded with refreshing practicality, sensibility, and ingenuity. I believe this response to be unique to someone who is as confident in their command of criticism as they are in their knowledge of art making. Mostajo is the kind of editor I hope my internal editor will someday grow up to be, a holistic voice of reason who knows creativity, structure, design, marketability, and the unconscious as the many equal facets of a single endeavor. It is with much joy that I present to you Lorena Gomez Mostajo.
Um, so I'm not going to read, um, but I'm going to talk about my practice that encompasses, encompasses many areas. Um, forgive if I navigate in this limbo of languages, but I've been living in, I was in Mexico City and now I'm here. So for those of you who are bilingual, I understand that just moving from one place to another creates these wide areas of confusion. So it's not that I'm confused or I want to be confused, it's just that language is taking my mind and inhabiting in a really problematic or fun way. Um, so uh, my background is in literature. I went to the National, uh, La Universidad Nacional Autónoma de México, UNAM, uh, and I studied uh, Hispanic American literature. And since very young, I was very interested in the, in the image, too, in the relationship between image and text. So I, I think that's how all my practice has been Build, being built, and also the fights that I have in my work, in the sense that I always try to think how uh, one affects the other, and how as an artist, or as a writer, or as an editor, I can work with them in different ways. Um, so I'm going to start, I, I started with say, saying this, but I want to start actually with the current project that I am uh, doing now. It's a small publishing house that is called uh, Taller Salon. So Taller Salon is uh, it's a printing house that uses a risograph. Does everybody know what a risograph is? It's like the, the ultimate hipster printer machine. <laughs> um, it has a very particular aesthetic, but uh, at least in Mexico City, the, there is a big movement now of small publishing houses that are using the machine. Actually, uh, just last month, there was a, a gathering in La Casa del Hijo del Aguizote. Uh, in downtown, uh, so there were a collective, there were collectives and many printing houses that got together to discuss how all these books that are coming out of this print of these printing houses are going to be distributed. Um, because in Mexico, uh, and I'm pretty sure in the U.S. it's also a problem if you don't have the right resources to distribute books is really hard, especially if you don't come with the big machinery of. Uh, marketing, and especially if you're in a country where people do not read as much as one would like. Um, so I, I was really fascinated by this impulse by, uh, of these really young uh, publishing houses because they're, for example, I, I'm, I want to mention one in Oaxaca. There's this uh, collective that wants to print really important works for uh, activism, and what they're asking uh, other publishers is to share work. So they want to hire someone who knows how to operate an offset machine because they got a big old offset machine and now they want to get the printer to work with them. So the, this, this world of making books is asking for other modes of labor, which is really, really interesting to see when we think about the, the big commercial um, world of books. Um, so Taller Salon, uh, what I want to do with this project is to actually work uh, with, the, with writers and artists um, in creating their, their own books. And I think for me it's really important. It's a project that is taking a long time to materialize because I'm one person and there's one designer, so it's a uh, publishing house that has two, two elements uh, working. But I think it's really important because uh, we're in, in the border, and I think this space
place is so rich and coming from Mexico City and living here and inhabiting and crossing and seeing all the possibilities, I think there's so much to do. Um, and there, there are no places where you can go and get your book printed for a, for a small amount of money and fast. So that's what this uh, Taller Salon is going to, wants to, to do in San Diego, to help writers and to promote also by the bilingual literature that comes out of, of here. Um, so I've, I've been, oh, sorry, I wanted to thank, thank so much. I just want to thank so much for the invitation. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, I'm also teaching a class here, uh, and I, I'm delighted to, to see the students engaging with, with the book thinking about books, and, and I, I'm using a, a text that I really love. It's called The New Art of Making Books by Luis Camion. He wrote it in 1975, and I'm just going to read three, three statements that I, I want us to think about. Um, a book is a sequence of spaces. A book is a space-time sequence. A writer, contrary to the popular opinion, does not write books. A writer uh, writes text. So, Carrion uh, was talking a lot about concrete poetry, but he was also mixing his artistic background, bringing it into the into writing. And I think uh, for me, for me as an editor, reading this is always very powerful because I, the book is such an interesting space, uh, an interesting concept too. I mean, there could be a book that is just sound, a book that is a space, a physical space a book that is a film. So that's, that's how I think about my work, mainly. In terms of, <coughs> for me, editing, it crosses with curating, with selecting, with DJing, with mixing, with dancing. Um, so I think, I think that the format of, of this practice, it can be understood in a wider way. So editing, contrary to what some people think is not only a proofreading or copy editing, Actually, editing, editing requires um, a really thoughtful and a very imaginative way of thinking about, about text and content. So an, an editor could be also an author in a way. And there, there are many relationships between editors and authors. And an editor just can be someone who uh, manages a project and gets it done, gets the book, um, takes the book to the print, and. Uh, organizes all the, the things, but an editor can be someone who proposes, uh, who sees in in the field of literature that there is a book that is missing about, um, for example, film, um, and that's one of the other projects that I started in Mexico City. I started working in a documentary film festival that is called Ambulante, and this festival travels around Mexico City, sorry, uh, around Mexico, and it goes to eleven states, and. The, there's so many, there's so many people wanting to read more about film and about filmmakers, but the books are so expensive in Mexico. If you've been there, I mean, a book could cost like I don't know, 400 pesos, 500 pesos, and it because mainly they're imported from Spain. Now there, there's there are many publishing houses that uh, that are based in Mexico, but still, books are very expensive, especially film studies books. So what we did in, with, in the festival was create a, a collection of books um, that we that we thought were important and could accompany the, the film festival. The first book was uh, cre uh, 
collection of essays about Chris Marker, uh, the French filmmaker, who died three years ago. So, um, and we actually did that book with very few resources. Uh, we wrote the, all the authors that collaborated, we wrote them and explained the project and told them that we were not going to get any money from the, uh, from the, sell, the, the selling of the book um, because we actually put more money than we were going to get. Uh, so, and it was impressive, I, I have the book here. I mean, uh, there were 11 authors that helped us create this book and di we decided to sell the book uh, in, when we do the exchange. Uh, this cost like seven, eight dollars, uh, which is, I can pass it, but maybe not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I think, one thing that we forget is that also making books is making sure that the people can afford them, that can get them, can, that can read them. And that, that implies having not only the content, uh, the, the sort of imagining what kind of book you would like to have, but also what kind of reader you want to, to address and to, to create, right? Because then, then the editor it has so many possibilities of creating interesting uh, readers. Um, there's this James Laughlin, I don't know if I'm saying uh, correctly. He's, he was the director of New, New Directions. Um, so he has a, if you can read his uh, autobiography, I really recommend it. He tells the story of um, how he was friends with Ezra Pound and he said, well, you're not such a good poet, why don't you start editing books? And then that's how he started editing really important poets and um, being a failed poet. But that's, that's not a bad start. <laughs> right? um, because then I think he found a way of, of creating his own literature and his own canon by editing, by choosing these writers. And, and this is the other part that I would like to talk about and <coughs> the way I think about my work is that um, for example, when I, when I do photography, I think that, I always think about, is, is it going to be a book? Is it going to be just a page? Is it going to be on the wall? Um, and that always brings me back to, to think about the, the space. So the book as a space. Um, and the book as a possibility of dialogue and discourse. So um, I'm going to show you also, uh, well, uh, before I go to the video, I just want to mention the, all the printing, the publishing houses that are in Mexico, that I really recommend that you check them out. Grande uh, Invertido, their way of working is actually very interesting. They are a uh, co-op, and there are 11 members in the co-op, and they decide what to publish, and everybody works in the making of the book. So they bought a big risograph, and uh, they're main, mainly they're artists, so the last books that they've been printing are drawing books, illustration books. Um, so what they do is that they get together, they have this space that also works as a performance space, as an auditorium. They uh, lend it to, to some unions to have their um, talks or to some artists to have their presentations. And what they do is that they get together, they print the book, and everybody cuts, pastes, and, and binds the book. So that's, a, I think that's a very interesting model. 
there's also taller de ediciones económicas, eh, Gato Negro, La Casa del Hijo del Aguizote, Ediciones Acapulco, and actually Ediciones Acapulco is a very interesting model. They have a collection of risographed books that uh, it works like in the 19th century, like uh, for entregas, so little by little you get the, the books, some part of the books, uh, Libros Fantasmas, and the Piracy Project. Mm, so please check them, check them out, because I think it's, it's worth it. Uh, so now I'm just going to show the, I don't know how I'm doing in time. I didn't You're fine. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to show the, the video. So I would like to, I would like to talk about how I think about space and what the relationship between the film that I did and other projects that I did. the only black uh, movie house in San Diego, right? <coughs>
for example, I had a, a heated conversation with the editor of the of the blog because he he insisted that uh, what I the piece that I wrote that goes with the with the film um, talks about those spaces, but I wanted to talk about the the seals that are trained in the in one part of the of the beach here. And he and he said, but you don't have any seals in the video. <laughs> I don't need the seals to. I mean, he said it in a more elaborate way, but that was the, the idea. Um, and I kept thinking, why do we still have this idea, very pervasive, that the image has to illustrate the text and vice versa? I know in some areas it's not like that. In the contemporary world, it works in a very different way. But still, in the in the editing world, is is that that there's that movement that, okay, this is going to understand what you're saying. And I think, um, I was telling him, this is another part of the text, it's not that uh, it's a video, or uh, and I need to explain what's going on in, in, every, in every scene. So I think that's, there's something uh, always, there's something uh, to consider always when working with images, and it's how it goes around the text, how it enlightens or how it obscures it in interesting ways. I mean, I like that there's that confusion of, of things. What if I mention something that is not there, but it also adds, it creates another mental space because when you read and when you watch, there, there are different things happening in your mind. Um, and going to that, for example, I when I was uh, an art student, I, I worked with these texts with this notion of abstraction. Um, and I, for example, used to collect uh, sentences that I heard on the street. And then, for example, if they, if they were the two people speaking, I will go around and uh, wrap them in with thread. And then I will take out the, the thread, collapse the thread, and write the sentence. Or I will go to, I was living in Chicago at the time, and there were these uh, housing projects that were going to be destroyed. Carini Green, and I remember measuring all the the doors, the windows, and then collapsing those measurements and just putting the sentence on the wall. So that was another. Um, I have just a quick example. How it was presented, uh, and that's how I work with the with the thread. And again, this was that's not the, oh, another photo. I shouldn't be there, but uh, so um, so again, I was thinking about the wall as as a page, and also how to mix the the spaces between the the text and the objects. So if I think about that in in a book, I mean this this is mixing the art practice that I have with making books. That doesn't happen with every book. With every, every book demands a different approach and uh, a different understanding of the text. So, so well, this is, 
I just wanted to share th this way of thinking because I think you can come to editing from different from different sources, from different areas, and you can be um, a writer, a historian, um, a sociologist, and engage editing in a very interesting way, and not follow the the same things that the same ideas that you have about what it is to be an editor, and especially right now that we're Editors are disappearing. No proofreaders. Nobody. Th there's a lack of proofreading in general in in publishing, and there's this constant. You can read all the time that everybody's saying texts that go to the internet have do not have the same um, rigor than before, and it's because every yeah everybody can write, but not a text needs to pass. I mean the writer can be it's that he's. Or, or her own editor, but proofreaders, editors also bring, create this space of communication between authors and, um, and readers. <coughs> so my invitation and what I wanted to say in this brief um, 20 minutes is to, if you're interested, interested in editing, to think about that as, as a collection of many activities, not only as producing a book. So start by questioning what what a book is, what, who is your reader, and what do you expect of reading, and what is writing, too. So, and, and I think the digital tools offer a way of, of rethinking um, what, how text should be read. So for example, I always find a, a little bit funny that we have to replicate the book in, with the readers, with the Kindle, and I think it's a waste of resources. So it, in the sense that, why do we need to replicate the same experience in the digital world? Why can't we use the hypertext, the link? I mean, some people have done it, but why don't we do it in commer commercially? So I think that's, that's, that's what I have to share today. Thank you so much for listening and for being very nice.
It's not as if it's not implied in every line he writes because, believe me, there are hours of thought put into every sentence. No. It is because precisely the amount of work that it takes him to place page after page together, the constant inner struggles he faces and the struggles with the editorial world, um, the hours and hours and hours of interviews, the compromise to what he believes, all of that, well, I don't think that could ever be a book long enough to contain it, which in a way makes me happy and relieved because it means that he will have to keep thinking, reporting, and writing on it all. Another curious thing about John, and there are many, many to choose from, is his capacity to be present in his selflessness, his willingness to listen and to fight for what he believes, not only through writing, but also through his acts. When many other journalists would choose to be to the, which is a comfortable distance, he chooses to be there. When many other journalists would choose to never share and connect, he's sharing something more than the time of an interview. He's sharing himself, his own struggles and fears. When other writers choose to ignore the problems, privileges, and pain that writing implies, he brings that to his own books. He makes it present. He invites the reader to start a conversation with him and with others on what writing and reading mean to all of the people involved, especially involved in what I think he does best, which is writing difficult stories about the complexity of injustice. So before I leave you, what I would hope happens right now for everyone who's present, but especially for John, is that to start a conversation, to begin the process of writing as much as in the writing itself, to allow all of us to bring our own fears and our own passions to the table, to, as John himself once told me, claim a right to write, which is a way to say fight together and here. Half as lovely as what you just heard a moment ago, right? Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you, Professora y Camarada Cristina Rivera Garza. Thank you, Compañeras Taylor and Tina, for all the work you've been putting this together at the Department of the University. Thank you, Maricón. Thank you, Cinta and Lorena, also for sharing. And thank you to everyone who's here. Listening, I think, is an act of great, great respect. And it thus warrants equal respect. My respect for you, you're showing me great respect right now by listening. And I think listening is a deeply powerful, politically political, uh, potentially political act that I hope to honor. And now a little backstory. I took things very literally when I got the invitation. We might have not talked about that. Um, very literally when I got the invitation to participate in this event, for which I'm grateful. And first I thought, so I'm invited to read. That means I, I just immediately thought, I can't talk this time. I usually <coughs> talk when people invite me to things like this. There's a lot going on in the world. There's a lot to share, a lot to say. And I think while well, the texts are out there, they have their own lives now. I'm with someone, so I want to look at them in the eyes and share with them and speak. I usually do. But this was an invitation to read, I thought, in my literal mind from this then. It's like, oh, well, what am I going to read? Because then I also took literally the new writing series. I have to read something new. Okay. I know it probably didn't mean that, and it's ridiculous that I thought that, but that's what I thought. And so I, okay, I need to read, and I need to read something new. The last several years, as Michael mentioned, I've been writing in Spanish mostly. Um, and I thought, well, I could maybe try and translate something and go back and forth, which would be interesting. 
but then I just feel it didn't feel like I had the time to do a translation to the depth that I would want to share here. Um, and really, the only thing I've been working on recently in English um, that hasn't been published yet is an essay. And it's an essay that I'll read about two-thirds of, because I think it's a bit too long. Um, and it's a text <coughs> that initially comes from another invitation. The first version of it came from an invitation to write an epilogue to um, a translated version of a book I wrote about the so-called drug war that was published in 2011. And since that book has a lot of reporting, a lot of narrative based on uh, reporting things people have lived through, this text that's going to come at the end after readers have already moved through that is more an analytical text, looking at recent events and the ways in which some of my thinking has changed in the last couple of years. I also thought this text might be interesting here and now and today because of the recent news, right, scandals and unveilings. Joaquin El Chapo Guzman has been arrested again the third time in 20 years. Um, you know, he's escaped twice, escaped twice from maximum security prison. And now we've also got the added degree of soap opera strangeness with Kate Del Castillo and Sean Penn somehow interviewing him. Um, and all of this, but most of what, so far, most of what I've seen in the media, which I haven't watched television because I tried not to do that more or less since 1988, um, and I read mostly, um, what I've seen still buys into what I think is a central myth of the so-called drug war, and that myth, as we'll hear in this essay, is that of a distinction or a separation between narcos and state, right? And so even, it doesn't matter if he escaped or if the federal government hired the German-trained engineers to build the tunnel, still the media discourse that comes out around all of this reinforces the idea that there are capitals, right? And there are drug lords, and then there are cops, and there are very different worlds, right? And the relationship that they have is that these do bad things, and these people try to stop them from doing bad things. And that, I think, is ridiculous. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about that. And so now I'm gonna read, which I've never really done in public. First, an epigraph. El primer muerto por torturas desencadenó en Brasil en 1964 un escándalo nacional. El muerto por torturas número 10 apenas sí apareció en los diarios. El número 50 fue aceptado como normal. La máquina enseña a aceptar el horror como se acepta el frío de invierno. Eduardo Valiano. On May 14, 2015, five children between the ages of 12 and 15 in Chihuahua, Mexico, tortured, murdered, and attempted to disappear a six-year-old boy, Christopher Marquez Mora. His mother reported him missing on May 15th. That same day, one of the 15-year-old boys told his mother what he had done. She then called the police. According to press coverage of the initial police report, a 12-year-old boy Two girls, ages 13, and two 15-year-old boys led Christopher away from the edge of town to gather wood, and they decided to play kidnapping. They tied Christopher up, beat him, choked him with a metal rod, stoned him, and stabbed him in the back. They dug a shallow grave next to a dry creek bed and buried Christopher face down, 
covering him with dirt, brush, and the carcass of a dog. Local press reports claimed that three of the five killers are brothers and sisters, and also Christopher's cousins. One of Christopher's aunts countered the police report's version of playing kidnapping, saying, they ripped out his eyes, they cut his lip, they sliced his cheeks, they stabbed him up to 27 times. Christopher's grandmother said that if justice were not done, the family would rise in arms to do it themselves. Has the constancy, the normalcy, even the cultural glorification of the so-called drug wars violence become so ubiquitous that children are capable of thinking at play? Or following Christopher's aunt, should one distrust the adolescent killer's use of the word play? Rather than play, was it experimentation? The adolescent who first drinks alcohol or smokes tobacco does not play at drinking or smoking, they try. The five children did not pretend, which itself would be alarming, to torture, kill, and disappear a six-year-old. They did so. And they did so to a small child they knew, someone in their family, five against one, boys and girls, all of them at least twice the age and twice or three times the size of their victim. Their violence mimicked that used routinely by police, soldiers, and non-state assassins to torture, kill, and disappear. Video images of such killings have been available on the internet and reproduced in fictional form in television shows, music videos, and films for years now. In this other respect, the children's experiment faithfully mirrored the adult practice, the overwhelming disparity of force and cruelty employed. The war continues. The war expands, adjusts, and thrives. The warriors reconfigure their tactics and practices to respond to and manipulate evolving social and political situations, and apparently the children are watching. The Global Commission on Drug Policy, June 2011 report. The global war on drugs has failed, with devastating consequences for individuals and societies around the world. Vast expenditures on criminalization and repressive measures directed at producers, traffickers, and consumers of illegal drugs have clearly failed to effectively curtail supply or consumption. While this assessment is accurate, the drug war has failed to repress drug production, shipping, and consumption. It misses the point. The drug war is not being waged to stop anything, but rather to keep certain things moving. We must cease once and for all, writes Michel Foucault, to describe the effects of power in negative terms. It represses, it censors, it abstracts, it masks, it conceals. In fact, power produces. It produces reality. It produces domains of objects and rituals of truth. Both the drugs and the war against them are global industries. Consider the following indications of scale. The United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, in 2011 report, estimates an annual global illegal drug proceeds at about $420 billion, 70% of which are likely to be laundered through the financial system. The RAND Corporation estimates that people in the United States spend about $100 billion a year on the four major illegal drugs, cocaine, marijuana, heroin, and methamphetamines. The Drug Policy Alliance estimates the United States government spends $51 billion on the drug war every year. In 2010, 
US state and federal governments spend $80 billion a year on prisons, with half of federal inmates incarcerated on drug-related crimes. The US Drug Enforcement Administration alone has 221 offices in the United States. It's another 86 offices in 67 countries, employing more than 9,200 people with an annual budget of $2.88 billion for the fiscal year 2015. The illegal drug market produces narcotics. The drug war market produces arrests and death. Arrests and death. When Mexican President Felipe Calderón left office in December 2012, 25 of the 37 most wanted people in Mexico had been captured or killed. Enrique Peña Nieto, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, took office that same month and continued to pursue Calderón's war strategy Soon arresting Mexico's most wanted men, Joaquin Guzman, twice now, Omar Trevillo Morales, and Servando Gomez. According to Mexican federal statistics, more than 164,000 people were murdered between 2007 and 2014. During Calderon's six-year drug war, murder rates rose by 150%, extortion by 146%, kidnapping by 250%. During the first half of the Peña Nieto administration, the number of registered homicides in Mexico went down from its peak in 2011 and began to climb again during the first nine months of 2015, during which time 27,047 people were murdered. Mexican federal statistics document 23,272 cases of forced disappearances between January 2007 and October 2014. This figure does not include disappearances of Central American migrants in Mexico, which are seldom reported. The Mexican National Human Rights Commission, however, documented 9,758 migrant kidnappings between September 2008 and February 2009, and 11,333 between April and September 2010. An image, bus after bus, carrying Central American migrants to the U.S.-Mexico border around the Tamaulipas border towns filled with luggage and no passengers. The duffel bags and backpacks stacked unclaimed at the bus stations. Arrests and death. The United States continues to incarcerate the largest percentage of the population of any country on Earth, with some 2.2 million people in jail and another 4.5 million either on probation or parole People of color continue to make up a largely disproportionate percentage of those incarcerated, especially on drug-related charges. The website killedbypolice.net compiled news reports documenting 769 police killings in the United States in 2013, 1,102 in 2014, 1,202 in 2015. The war continues. By May 2015, some 45,000 Mexican military troops were being deployed across the country, carrying out 1,500 operations daily. These numbers from the Mexican Secretary of National Defense do not include the many tens of thousands of federal, state, municipal police also deployed across the country. The war expands, adjusts, and thrives. On June 30th, 2014, 22 people were murdered in Tlatlaya, Estado de México. Federal authorities said that the killings took place in a confrontation between an armed gang and the army. In September 2014, survivor eyewitness testimony described an army massacre. That testimony has now been confirmed by various investigations and led to a national scandal. 
January 6, 2015, federal police and soldiers killed at least 16 people at Watsingan in Japan. Initial government reports describe the confrontation with the police. Investigative journalist Laura Castellanos reconstructed the events of that day based on 44 interviews with survivors and witnesses. Federal police and soldiers massacred unarmed people. The scandal this time was shorter lived. On May 22, 2015, federal police reported a confrontation in Tahuato, Michoacan, in which 42 civilians and one police officer were killed. Media companies initially repeated the police version of a confrontation without change. Excuse me, without so much as mentioning Tlatlaya or Patsingan. <coughs> a few days later, the headlines would change. Facing the confrontation in Michoacan, doubts, wrote Proceso in the 24 May 2015 issue. One of Mexico's biggest gunfights in a decade may have been a cold-blooded massacre, wrote the Business Insider on 29 May 2015. On the night of September 26, 2014, scores of Iguala and Cocula Municipal Police, Guerrero State Investigative Police, and Federal Police, and an unknown number of ununiformed masked armed men attacked five buses of students from the Raul Isidro Burgos Rural Teachers College in located like Iguala in the state of Guerrero, and the sixth bus carrying a third division youth soccer team from the Guerrero State Capital of Chitantino. The attacks took place at nine separate locations over the course of nearly seven hours, roughly between 9 p.m. and 4 a.m. During the attacks, the police and ununiformed armed men murdered six people, three Ayotzinapa students, one 14-year-old soccer player, the soccer team's bus driver, and a woman riding a taxi. The police and armed men severely wounded more than 20 people, one of whom, an Ayotzinapa student shot in the head, remains in a coma, another of whom, an Ayotzinapa student shot in the mouth, still awaits facial reconstruction surgery. The various corporations of uniformed police acting in coordination forcibly disappeared 43 Ayotzinapa students. None of them have been seen since police piled them in the backs of their squad trucks and drove away. One of the murdered students who ran alone after a second gun attack by ununiformed armed men was found in a nearby field early the following morning, September 27th, dead. His killers cut off his face, ripped out his eyes, and left his body in a small trash dump near the scene of one of the attacks. The photograph of the student's bloodied, exposed skull quickly traveled online. The survivors of the attack saw the image as they were waiting to testify before a state prosecutor on the morning of September 27th, still in Iguala. Terror, they told me later. They felt terror. Military intelligence agents observed the attacks at two locations. The Mexican army, whose Iguala base is located 1.6 kilometers from the site of one of the largest attacks, did nothing to intervene. Afterward, the state and federal governments built a series of descriptions of the events that night that minimized the role of the municipal police, denied the participation of the state and federal police and soldiers, and placed the blame for the disappearance and alleged murder of the 43 students conveniently on a handful of narcos. The government investigations are based exclusively on supposed confessions, several of which are conducted under torture, with no support from forensic evidence. The government's investigation seeks to maintain one of the essential myths of the drug war, the separation of narcos and state. In Mexico, police and military forces at every level 
and organized crime have merged. It is no longer useful to talk about corruption if it ever was. Police and non-police assailants carry out sometimes different and sometimes overlapping tasks inside a single industrial political machine. The tension implicit in the supposed difference between police and criminal is necessary to structure the ability of both to function as war machines. Achille Mbembe provides the following description of war machines, a concept he expands on from the work Gilles Luce and Felix Coutari. Mbembe writes, War machines are made up of segments of armed men that split up or merge with one another depending on the task to be carried out and the circumstances. Polymorphous and diffuse organizations, war machines are characterized by the capacity for metamorphosis. The relation to space is mobile. Sometimes they enjoy complex links with state forms, from autonomy to incorporation. The state may, of its own doing, transform itself into a war machine. It may appropriate to itself an existing war machine or help to create one. War machines function by borrowing from regular armies while incorporating new elements well adapted to the principle of segmentation and deterritorialization. Regular armies, in turn, may readily appropriate some of the characteristics of war machines. A war machine combines a plurality of functions. It has the features of a political organization and a mercantile company. The attacks on the streets of Iguala on September 26th and 27th reveal the evolving practices of the larger drug war machine, combining multiple forms of violence. The confluence of killing, six people shot dead, mutilation as an act of terror, Ayotzinapa student Julio Cesar Mondragon's body found early on the morning of the 27th with his face and eyes removed, and forced disappearance, the 43 students still missing. Social control and counterinsurgency functions have merged with territorial control and mercantile functions. The drug war has enabled the growth and expansion of illegal markets into all areas of society, areas of state jurisdiction, and especially domains of life and death. Terror remains a central feature not only of domination, but also of market expansion. Gloria Arenas, a former guerrilla fighter and ex-political prisoner, told me, reflecting on the police-organized crime control of territory in her home state of Veracruz, sin terror no hay negocio, or literally, there's no business without terror. This has been the case for centuries. Gloria Arenas was describing the experience of living in Veracruz in 2014, but her succinct description could be applied to the entire project of modernity. There is no capitalism without terror. There is no democracy without terror. No nation state without terror. No high modernist poetry without terror. No whiteness indistinguishable from terror. Fear, terror, and horror are essential elements of both the illicit markets and the deaf markets that have formed and grown along with the constant fueling of the drug war. Just as illegality is part of the commodity form of substances like cocaine and marijuana, terror and horror have become parts of the commodity forms of killing. The reconfigured kidnapping, extortion, forced labor, human smuggling, and human trafficking industries in Mexico, and police killings and mass incarceration in the United States. Arrests and death do not lead to a slump in drug production, shipping, or consumption. So we have the apparent paradox. As the war increases, as more people are arrested and killed, the objects of attack multiply. The paradox disappears if we invert the logic of the war. It does not strive to win, that is, in this case, to stop or eliminate drug consumption, 
but rather, as with the Shield and Bembe's analysis of colonial wars, to sustain itself, to produce absolute enemies, to continue indefinitely, and to constantly expand its reach. Often the failure of the drug wars presented as the inevitable doom of policy before the power of the market. But are they separate? The policy, the war, creates new and restructures existing markets. Michel Foucault wrote in Discipline and Punish that the penitentiary technique and the delinquent artisans twin brothers. The drug war and the illegal drug markets are in a similar sense conjoined twins. This could be a metaphor for how the system operates. The illegal drugs and the war against them form a single economy. The dominant structural feature linking both markets is legality illegality. The movable fissure separating legality and illegality is the point where and how the two markets are conjoined. The police and armies can steal, imprison, and kill legally. The illegality of the drugs creates their unique commodity form, one feature of which is the exponential elevation of price upon crossing international borders from points of production to points of sale and consumption. Illegality also creates an endless supply of criminals. Illegality requires official invisibility at points of production, transit, distribution, and sales. Who can guarantee official invisibility of the commodities in the supply chain, agents of the state? The illegal drug market revolves mostly around these commodities, cocaine, marijuana, methamphetamines, heroin, MDMA, LSD, and so on. Cocaine, marijuana, and heroin require land, cultivation, agricultural workers, and production facilities. While meth and other synthetic drugs require laboratories, chemical agents, chemists, and workers. They all depend upon the global, invisible shipping companies. Imagine hiding California's almond crop, or Florida's orange and tomato crops. Imagine hiding Coca-Cola's global shipping network. Drug production, trafficking, and sales locations and networks are not hidden from the drug warriors. Instead, those very warriors collaborate in creating and sustaining the fiction of invisibility. The drug war market revolves mostly around the symbolic commodities of the arrested and killed criminals. Arrests and assassination plots require information and informants. Who can guarantee information? Drug producers, traffickers, and dealers. The two marketplaces are structurally linked by the need to administer the invisibility of the industry and the need to selectively supply information leading to discrete moments of visibility. Both the Calderon and Pinoneto administrations, like their U.S. counterparts over the past 40 years, have been extremely successful at producing arrests and death. The two administrations differ, though, in how they present their symbolic commodities. The defining image of, the Calderon's, of Calderon's policy was that of a photograph showing Arturo Bertrand Leila's mangled, bloody, and dead body. He had just been killed in a Marine and DEA raid on his apartment in Cuernavaca. His body was stripped of shirt and pants, and covered with carefully placed, blood-stained 500 peso and $100 bills. Marines escorted a photographer to the heavily guarded apartment where Leila's body lay so that the photographer could take the picture. The Peña Nieto administration presented the image of Joaquin Guzman's first arrest with a photograph of him also shirtless, kneeling, his head pulled back by a gloved hand's grip on his hair. His second arrest photograph shows him in a sleeveless shirt seated alone on the edge of a hotel bed, staring dazed into the distance. From bottom destruction and mockery to absolute submission, these images produced and offered to the media by state agents attempt to show a regime of control, the triumph of law over criminality. Rather, they reveal here too in the speech act 
a structural link between the law and the lawless. For in the precise moment of bodily contact, the law performs in the very language of terror ascribed to the lawless, the theatrical intentionality of displayed <coughs> dead and docile bodies. As the arrests increased during the Calderon Opinion Nip administration, so did the number of people killed and disappeared. This is the market expanding. During the same time, all manner of organized criminal activity increased, including activities like cattle theft, oil theft, and illegal mining. As the market expands, it reaches into new territories. In many regions of Mexico, the central local commodities of the drug market have expanded to include not only the local sale of narcotics themselves, but the direct control over and the exploitation of life and death. Power circulates through the shifting and unstable merger of law and criminal. Shil Mimbe writes, my concern is those figures of sovereignty <coughs> whose central project is not the struggle for autonomy, but the generalized instrumentalization of human existence and the material destruction of bodies and populations. Such, such figures of sovereignty are far from a piece of prodigious insanity or an expression of a rupture between the impulse of the body and those of the mind. Indeed, they, like the death camps, are what constitute the normal of the political space in which we still live. He argues that this mechanism of sovereignty was first developed in the institutions of slavery and colonial occupation. Nimbe. If the relations between life and death, the politics of cruelty, and the symbolics of profanity are blurred in the plantation, it is notably in the colony and under the apartheid regime that there comes into being a peculiar terraformation I will now turn to. The most original feature of this terraformation is its concatenation of biopower, the state of exception, and the state of siege. Crucial to this concatenation is once again race. In fact, in most instances, the selection of races, the prohibition of mixed marriages, forced sterilizations, and the extermination of vanquished peoples are to find their first testing ground in the colonial world. Here we see the first syntheses between massacre and bureaucracy that incarnation of Western rationality. What one witnesses in World War II is the extension to the so-called civilized peoples of Europe of the methods previously reserved for the savages. Mimbe writes, the colonies might be ruled over an absolute law, that colonies might be ruled over an absolute lawlessness stems from the racial denial of any common bond between the conqueror and the native. Colonial warfare is not subject to legal and institutional rules. Peace is not necessarily na the natural outcome of a colonial war. In fact, the distinction between war and peace does not avail. Colonial wars are conceived of as the expression of an absolute hostility that sets the conqueror against an absolute enemy. Mbembe introduces the concept of necropower to describe how power functions in contemporary forms of colonial occupation. In the discussion of the Israeli occupation of Gaza and the West Bank, he outlines three major characteristics of necropower. One, the dynamics of territorial fragmentation. Two, splintering occupation and the proliferation of sites of violence. And three, the state of siege as military institution and the addition of invisible killing to execution. And they also discusses the concepts of state of injury and death in life. Discussing plantation slavery, he writes, the slave is therefore kept alive but in a state of injury in a phantom-like world of horrors and intense cruelty and profanity. Slave life, in many ways, is a form of death in life. 
The drug war is a necropolitical war. Thus understood, the drug war is not a failure. It succeeds in producing death, death and life, and opening new death markets. <coughs> While it retains elements of what Foucault calls biopower, powers control over domains of life through institutions like the prison, the clinic, and the school, it extends beyond biopolitical by applying techniques of material destruction of life and terror formations that produce various states of injury. Race continues to be essential to its operation, with the technological function of race unsuccessfully masked by the apparently non-racial enemy category of producers, shippers, and consumers of illegal substances. The drug war logic creates an apparently unmoored, absolute enemy category that is then applied to the institutionalized and culturally embedded practices of racism. This is where I skip five pages. Sorry, because I think I went a long time. The last little paragraph says, the drug war cannot be understood as a decades-long failure to repress, but rather as one of multiple reconstitutions of never fully ended colonial wars. As a wildly productive, racialized terror formation, it produces wealth, discourses of legitimacy, careers, pensions, wounds, terror, death, and death in life. starting in January, late December, early January 2007. And I went and reported extensively on those operations um, in each kind of, in 2007. Since then, the reporting that's mostly in the book that that essay is, or a version of that essay was meant to address, um, the reporting is done in Sinaloa, in Tamaulipas, in Nuevo Leon, um, and Ciudad Guerrero, where I've spent really most of the time recently. Um, Ah, Chihuahua, Ciudad Juárez. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, someone who's always been interested in the drug war, especially uh, as it pertains to Mexico, but not knowing uh, how to become educated in that because it is such a long and involved history and kind of uh, narrative. Where would you recommend begin beginning? Great. There are excellent resources available in English. I would rattle off right now a, a number of books that I think are incredibly important. In the context of the United States right now, absolutely the book The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Um, in terms of some background history on the drug war in the United States, a book called Smoke and Mirrors by a, a reporter named Dan Baum, B-A-U-M. Also a book called In Pursuit of Oblivion <coughs> by Richard Davenport Hines. I think this is all English language stuff. 
for folks who read Spanish in Mexico, there's uh, an amazing wealth, actually, I think, of excellent reporting from a, a young generation of Mexican reporters who kind of came of age all of a sudden finding their country in war, even though there were no like war with a, you know, a, another nation had been declared. Marcela Turati has a book called Fuego Cruzado. Um, some of that, we'll find some, I, I need to get, Christina, there's a, if anybody, does anybody know, there's a, a blog that does translation of long form Mexican journalism into English, I'm just blanking on its name, but they translate a lot of some of these young Mexican reporters. Marcela Turati, Daniel Larrea, um, Diego Sorno, Emiliano Ruiz Parra, mm, these are all really good uh, Mexican journalists who are writing on the drug war. Um, yeah, to get started. Thank you. Sure. Yes. I have a question for John. I was wondering where especially the drug war was concentrated. Is it more in Mexico City, Central Mexico, the edge coastal cities in Mexico? And how is the drug war in Mexico different from the drug wars in Colombia or Italy? Thank you. Um, one thing that I think is central with um, reading Ashil Membe's essay, Necropolitics, to think theoretically about the drug war is the idea of mobility. The drug war can appear anywhere, right? It can immediately appear on a street corner in New York, out of nowhere, and kill a man, as we saw in the case of Eric Garner's murder at the hands of police. Um, in Mexico, it shifts and moves constantly. So a place that was completely off the you know, media radar screen for the drug war, Iguala, is now one of the epicenters, right? Because of, because of one event. But that event, um, which is something I very much recommend folks are interested in further reading, an excellent essay you can find online called Itemizing Atrocity. And it references a brilliant historical book called Scenes of Subjection. And these three writers all talk about the concept of the terror of the mundane. And they question <coughs> their kind of scandalous response to the so-called exceptional. So when Michael Brown was murdered, and then there were protests in the street, the protesters were met with a heavily militarized police response. Then all of a sudden there was a scandal, especially in white liberal media, about the militarization of police. And this was the kind of exception. And these writers are saying, well, wait, what does that exception then make normal? Because like, heavily militarized police presence in black communities is something that has been in place for decades, if not centuries, right? Um, and something similar in Mexico with Iguala, which is a horrendous, indescribably atrocious event, the police attacks against the students. But what ended up happening is that when the attention was directed towards Iguala, it turns out that their families looking for their disappeared loved ones. In a town of 150,000, families started gathering at a church, going out to the hillsides to look for hidden graves on their own. In the first few months, Without any help from the state, they found more than 100 shallow graves with bodies, with just taking hammers and iron rods to stick them down into the earth, pull them out, and smell the pit. Right? So it revealed a, sim a seeming state of normalcy that was an absolute state of terror. So in Mexico, right now, Guerrero is one of the states that is kind of in right? It's, it's in the media gaze as a, as a major center of so-called drug war violence. But the particular insidious, one of the horrifying things about drug war, just like the war on terror, right? I think analysis could be very similar, is the fact that it's mobile. 
the Empire can put it wherever they want to, and it's the drop of a hat. For both of you, it seems to me that you both have developed highly critical views <coughs> of both writing or bookmaking, just uh, daily life. And I'm wondering if you could connect that with your experience both in the United States and Mexico, and your experience both in English and Spanish. Is that really connected? Is that something that gave way, that fueled your critical insight about your own experience and the experience of your own communities? Yes, it definitely, uh, just moving to San Diego, which I, I really feel this militarized city. Uh, so it's so pleasant. Um, and I never, never thought that the passing of an airplane, the sound of the passing of an airplane could be such a reminder <coughs> of war, of the, of the machinery that happens in the city. Um, and also the, the, the exchange. Um, I mean, this is where the tunnels of the El Chapo are were discovered. This is where there's a lot of trafficking of uh, people, drugs, uh, and and the presence of the border patrol has definitely informed my everyday experience in in San Diego and in the United States. Um, this this machinery of of vigilance and, and punishment, and also of who needs to be in which side and how, and, and corruption too, because nobody talks about the corruption that the border patrol ha has. I mean, how, how can all those drugs can pass through this border if it's not with the help of the border patrol and the, all the institutions also in the United States? So I, it has definitely living in, in both countries and living in both languages has altered the, the view that I even had a, about the United States before living in the, in the border. So. Um, yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. <laughs> oh, indeed. I, think, I mean, there's, um, it, the commitment to constantly cultivating uh, a deep and radical critique is like in, inextricable from the commitment to write. You know, they're both like. Uh, you know, it makes me a really annoying person to go to the movies with, but. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah. Yes. I have a question for both of you, but I, I'm sorry, I'm really bad at names. What was your name? Lorena. I'm sorry. Lorena. Lorena. Okay, so. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I heard that you're trying to create a space where writers can come and publish their books in downtown San Diego? No. Uh, okay. Yes, but not in downtown San Diego. Or it's, yes, here at, actually at UCSD. So if anybody wants to come and check uh, the, the thinking space, just write me. Uh, you find my information at UCSD. Uh, I was wondering if you've heard um, there's a bookstore in New York City called McNally Jackson, and they actually have like a really awesome small machine that you can print right there, and then there's a place to sell them. So I know I was wondering if there was something like that, or if you were going more with like the lithograph,ic kind of like manual. What it's a risograph, so that it's the similar to version. yeah, but okay. it's only just for printing right now. Yes. All right, so I have a question for both of you. 
Um, so I guess uh, you brought up Sean Penn thing, so we're gonna go to the Sean Penn thing really quickly. But I guess for both of you, you're saying curating is editing is also curating, obviously, and it's also making, and it's not just kind of reshaping something, but also creating something in its space. Yeah. And you're saying also well, a lot of things about social justice, but mostly there was also this kind of conversation that came up about besides all the other problematic things about like how. <laughs> Like, who is Sean Penn in this situation, soap opera situation, but like someone that's appropriating something that's happening in a different, right? And so these these are the two things I would like to kind of ask you. <coughs> One of the things Sean Penn said, and this goes back to what you were saying about accessibility, if you're making books, if you're editing, if you're working these spaces, how do you make them into something that everyone can access, especially in, in places where it's not readily available? Um, and also like what the ethics that goes into telling these stories and how do we deal with those things and how do we make it accessible and how do we stop Sean Penn's from coming in and being like, here's the story I'm gonna tell. And also he said, I don't know if you guys heard this part, but he said journalists should do everything for free because it's like an ethical thing that they're doing because he's a billionaire, so. But, yeah. <laughs> Both of you know what to do. So about Sean First off, I think it's, I mean, he went to interview him? I have no problem with that, right? So a reporter going to, to interview this person. I have a very sig I have significant problems with the text he wrote, um, with the way he treated the person, the questions he asked. I mean, I don't know if you've read the text, but it's very profoundly misogynist. Um, and it's, uh, and it buys into uh, these myths, right? It's There's no questioning of, um, you know, let's say, he, he defends suspending judgment for a moment, right? To like take, you know, Joaquin Guzman uh, seriously and ask him why he does what he does, something like that. That's all fine. But why does, why is there no critique of the existence of the DEA? Like there's no presence of the United States has used this discourse to create a global police force. Like I think El Chapo Guzman is a pretty terrifying, uh, person out there in the world, but I'm equally or perhaps more terrified by the existence of the DEA and the Border Patrol and ICE. Um, in fact, I think they killed probably more people um, and have over time or something. Because, like, my problem with Sean Penn's <coughs> the text is that it buys into the just kind of media soap opera spectacle of the drug world. You know, he's the grand couple, so I'm going to go talk to the grand couple, and I scored the interview, and then I won't even repeat, so it's just inane stuff in his text, um, but it goes that way. And there's no critical consciousness or engagement whatsoever with, I mean, what is a drug war? Where does it come from? And his attempt at critique at the very end of the text is saying something like, but you know, as long as they're buyers, they're always gonna be sellers. So you can't really blame them because we're all up here, you know, smoking it out kind of thing, which I think is also completely ridiculous. And, like, very stupid. Then about the jungle. You mean the luxury Mexico. resort where he took you in Sinaloa, apparently, on like but a university it's, campus? No, it's the desert. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, I mean, Rolling Stone, like, it was, it's a, it's business. Yeah. And there's no, even how he tells how he got the interview, it's just, it's really so popular. The whole thing is, it's a spectacle. A very problematic one, of course. 
but I think the way it was framed it was completely absurd and disrespectful to to the to everybody um, that has worked so hard <laughs> to actually talk about you know, these problems. So, yeah. Okay. One last question. Well, two questions. student in the United States right now and not knowing about white police shootings of black men and women. I, I, I think that hopefully should be a problem. That's like a good... <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, but like it would be impossible not to see, to, to come into contact with in your, in your daily life these representations, whether fictionalized or, or not. Do you 
do you write these things to call those people out, or do you write those things to try to touch the layman and make them aware of everything and hope to affect change? So, yeah. Um, so, el hombre del gato. Está ahí detrás, no. Um, no, so I definitely think like what I'm trying to describe is 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 how um, a intensely complex system has been established, and it's not a new system. It's a system that has deep roots, and I'm going to only very tangentially mention this, but like I think like the drug war, the war on terror, are contemporary reconfigurations of colonial warfare. Right? These lands were invaded. The genocide started here right here. Uh, slavery, the transatlantic slave trade, you know, centuries. And then a constant reconfiguration of those forms of power. So I don't think the myths of our right, education, our lives tell us, then there was independence, then there came you know, the, or the, or the revolution or independence, and then you've got civil war, and then you've got you know, civil rights, and this kind of like Hegelian constant march of history towards progress or what have you democracy development, and you can even have the conservatives say, oh, the end of history, there's no more ideological battles, it's just capitalism and some you know, technical tweaks here and there, and people are happy. Right? Instead, like a very different viewpoint is to say, wait, like in what ways did uh, colonial contacts and colonial warfare, colonial violence become constantly protected, constantly shifted and reconfigured to keep itself safe from rebellion, from insurrection? Um, and of course, this implies also that insurrection and rebellion have maintained uh, or have constantly resurfaced and, and, and maintained roots you know, for centuries in these lands. So I look at the drug war as, in a very systemic way. There might be a handful of individuals who know a lot about how, like, bogus or what have you, or how things work technically. Um, but that's not even as interesting to me as this, this second part of your question like doing, writing, asking questions, <coughs> telling stories that challenge us to break apart a lot of official discourse, right? Mm -hmm. These myths and these ideas that the police are here to protect us, to serve and to protect, and that, you know, the you know, drugs are dangerous and that's why there's this, you know, earnest campaign, which maybe is sometimes ill fraught with technical difficulties, but it's you know really out there to to uh, uh, to keep kids safe from drugs and things like that, right? Which, if you look at the history, the development of the policies, that was never its intention. That's not where it comes from. It comes from an ex explicit, in the United States, political initiative to restructure racialized violence, like violence that was maintained in the segregation era and then had to be reworked um, to respond to an attempt to stifle insurrection and rebellion, which, you know, gets somewhat euphemized in talks about subversive struggle. And just to add to the answer, I think um, it's very important rather than to, to understand the ideologies that are around, rather than to think that someone has the power to actually direct this big system and mechanisms. And, and once you ask about the discourse that many of us replicate without even thinking about that. I think that's when the, the possibility of critique comes. Um, and the question of can change happen from a work of art, from writing, 
It's a, it's a valid question still, even though many people will say, well, no, art doesn't change absolutely anything, or writing doesn't change absolutely everything. But I think just having the question around is still very important, because it, it can open the door to understand the work that you do and the way you approach the world in an in a interesting way, in a more active way, too. All right, wonderful words. Thank you so much for your reading.